Greeny with Mike Greenberg, the podcast. The moments and the voices behind them. Maybe. Yes, sir. Legendary Voices Week with Greeny. Coming to you live from above the Heineken River deck at Pier 17. And that's a voice I don't even need to tell you what his name is, as we will have several, one each day over the course of this week of the most legendary voices in the history of sports. Their play-by-play courtesy for all of those was CBS Sports. And the unmistakable voice belongs to the legendary Vern Lundquist, who's good enough to spend some time with us. Hello again, Vern Lundquist. Hello to you. Uh, it, it is a pleasure. We had, for those who listen to my podcast, I had the distinct privilege of spending about 45 minutes with you going over a lot of this ground earlier, or I guess it was last year at this point. And when we decided to do the Legendary Voices Week, I said, those stories were so good, we need to tell them to the entire audience. And so we're delighted to have you back. At my age, I hope I can remember them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here's what I discovered. as When I did the little bit of research that was necessary to interview Vern Lundquist several months ago, I realized that you literally have been at everything. You are, in that regard, sort of the Forrest Gump of sports. So let us go through <laughs> some of the legendary events, and we'll get in as many as we can in the time that we have. What I had not remembered was that you were the local play-by-play voice of the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s, the legendary Landry America's team, Dallas Cowboys, a team that did as much to put football into the place that it currently occupies in our consciousness today as any team ever has. So when people ask you, what's your one overwhelming or abiding memory of that team, that group, that era? What's the story that jumps to mind? Well, I I think, Grimmy, uh <clears throat> The fact that I was the same age as the guys who were prominent players then. <clears throat> and uh, in a very real sense, we've remained friends, a, a court cluster of them, and we've all grown old together. And I'm still in touch with many of those guys. Uh, I texted Drew Pearson when, when he was uh, recently selected uh, into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm doing an event with Roger Staubach. We have dinner together at least once a year, he and Marianne and Nancy and I. Uh, I'm still close with Calvin Hill and uh, not not so close with Mel Renfro because we moved away from Steamboat, to Steamboat Springs, oh gosh, 35 years ago. Uh, but we get back to Texas periodically. So that is the, that is the lasting meaning for me. Now, as, as for single events, it's hard to pick out. But I would go all the way back to my first year, Cowboys. I was the pre- and post-game host. And uh, uh, I made the charter trip to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) things were so much simpler then. Uh, Chuck Lane, who was the PR director of, uh, of the Packers, and I were friends. And I called him. And I said, Coach Lombardi is going to do a press conference for Dallas media only on Thursday before the Saturday game. So we all flew up 
And uh, there were only eight, ten of us in the room along with Coach Lombardi. And I had arranged with Chuck to have Coach Lombardi come down on the field at Lambeau to do an interview. And he had agreed to it. So when the conversation with the writers, the written media was completed, uh, I looked at Chuck and Chuck moved over to Coach Lombardi and he pointed to me and said, uh, you need to go downstairs in the elevator with Vern. And Coach Lombardi looked at me and said, I'm not going to do it. Hmm. And I said, dear God, I've come all this way and you're, you know, I've got a photographer down there. They promoted the heck out of this back home at Channel 8, WFAA, uh, please. And he stood up and he said abruptly, as he could speak abruptly, uh, I don't do television without my coat and tie. And I said, Coach, if it would make you feel more comfortable, I'll I'll go in a T-shirt. <laughs> but we need to go down and do this. And so he walked out of the room, and I pleaded with Chuck, and he said, I'll be right back. Lombardi comes back five minutes later. He says, okay, let's go get this done. So we descended the elevator. Jack Murray, my photographer, was waiting. And he started rolling a film, no tape back then, uh, as soon as we came out on the field. So we were set to go. And the topic of most of our five-minute conversation was the recent installation of an electric grid <laughs> under Lambeau Field so that this field would never freeze. Well... I woke up 7.30, had a wake-up call 7.30 at the Northland Inn in Green Bay, and the operator very nicely said, Good morning, Mr. Lundquist. It's sunny and 13 degrees below zero. <laughs> uh, the, field, the field froze. And that, that the, the legendary ice bowl, we lost a little tiny bit of the conversation at the very beginning, but just to be clear, that's the ice bowl game we're talking about to this day. Still the coldest game ever played in NFL history. And, and, one, and I mean, a one-on-one -on -one interview with Lombardi back in the day. Greeny with you with the great Vern Lundquist from above the Heineken River deck at Pier 17. Right, let's move along because I want to get in as many as we can. Because you've called sure. every famous game ever. The Duke-Kentucky college basketball game. The, the legendary Leitner game. I think many people will say it's the greatest game ever played in the history of basketball. What's the one thing you remember most vividly about it? Well, uh, the end of it, as a matter of fact, uh, and I'll try and be as brief as I can because I've got so many vivid memories of that game. I mm -hmm. worked it with Lenny Elmore. And Leslie Visser, the legendary Leslie Visser, was our sideline reporter. And Kaywood Ledford, the, the great basketball voice of Kentucky, had announced prior to the season that whenever Kentucky lost – that would be his last game. Assuming they went to the national championship game and won, great finish. But he was just a, such a humble guy and so revered in Kentucky. Leslie was 20 feet away from him for the last six minutes of regulation and all of overtime to tell his story. And the game was so compelling, we never got it on. So the first thing is, I remember when Mike Krzyzewski went out to celebrate with his players, instead of going over to the Duke radio booth, broadcast row, he peeled back to his left and went directly to Kaywood Ledford. Now, Kaywood was one row behind us and maybe 15 feet away. So I get to witness this whole thing. 
And Mike went on the air with Kay Wood to the state of Kentucky to thank him for all he had done mm. for basketball in his state and throughout the country. And I, I just thought it was such a gracious gesture. And if you will, the other part of this is that back in 1972, on October 5th, as a matter of fact, uh, Calvin Hill, I mentioned, we were good friends. He and Janet, his wife, they were expecting. Turns out their only child. But Calvin, I, I, we talked during her pregnancy, and I said, when she gives birth, give me a call. Because I'd like to, and he was an icon in Dallas. He still is. And I would like to announce your child's birth on my local television show. It's Friday at noon. He called me and he said, Janet gave birth last night to Grant Henry Hill. Hmm. So that night, uh, 10 o'clock, I, I mentioned that. And on Sunday, the Cowboys played the Pittsburgh Steelers. Calvin Hill, with a minute to go in the game, rolled out to his right, pulled up and threw a halfback pass, 50 yards. Ron Sellers diving in the end zone, grabbed it. Cowboys won. Now, come forward 20 years, 1992. And here is this little baby, now grown to a six-foot, eight-inch All-American, named Calvin Hill, throwing the ball inbounds to uh, to Kristen Leitner. Uh, a slight curve on the pass, but Leitner found it had the presence of mind with 2.1 seconds to go to go up and, and hit the shot. Hmm. And in the rapturous enthusiasm of the moment, I looked over behind the bench and there were Calvin and Janet Hill. And they had just watched their 20-year-old son complete uh, the end of a miraculous game. So I was able to tell that story on the air. And, and a year later, no, 20 years later, we were at a seminar in New York. And I told this, I was in a seminar with Bill Raftery, Steve Smith from Michigan State, and Calvin and, and Grant. And I told that story to the, to the audience. And Grant came up to me. He said, I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, it, it happened. So the next day, I bumped into him. He says, I talked to my mom last night. And she said, yes, you really did. I said, Grant, did you think I was lying to you? <laughs> yeah, it really happened. So, uh, memories of the Cowboys, the, the legend, and, and the Leitner, and, and the Leitner game. Uh, the Leitner game, but to you, the Grant Hill game. The great Vern Lundquist is with me here, kicking yeah, off that's true. Legendary Voices Week. Okay, the other thing that I had not realized before I interviewed you a few months ago is that you in mm -hmm. the Olympics in 1994 were the voice of figure skating. For Nancy Car Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, inarguably the most famous event of the Olympics, the most infamous Olympic event of our generation. What do you remember the most about Tanya and Nancy? Well, uh, the buildup, I guess. Uh, the incident, the injurious incident happened to Nancy Kerrigan uh, on January 6, 1994, uh, Scott Hamilton, Tracy Wilson, and I, our three commentators, were guests. We were observers at the U.S. National Figure Skating Championships in Detroit. And that was the morning uh, on which Shane Stant, this, uh, this thug, uh, at the insistence of Tanya Hardy's uh, former husband, had attacked 
uh, Nancy Kerrigan whacked her over the thigh with a, an iron bar in attempts to break her leg and get her unable to compete. And from that moment on, Nancy was given six weeks to prove she could compete. She did. They kicked Tanya off the team. She sued. She got placed back on. And the buildup, Mike, was unlike, whoops, I'm learning how to use this thing. We got it. Vern is on the FaceTime, and it's working just fine. You can't put your finger over, yeah, I can't put your finger over the Oh, good. No, no problem. Okay, the buildup was. Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) But but the buildup was just unbelievable and and culminated, and this seems impossible to believe. Last night, we watched 60 Minutes, Mm -hmm. and on 60 Minutes last night were two colleagues who were in the arena when Nancy and Tanya skated together in their first practice in Lillehammer. Susan Spencer and Martha Teichner. Now, this enormous buildup happened for six weeks, and then uh, they were both cleared to, to compete. Uh, on the day of that practice, uh, Connie Chung, who co-anchored the Evening News with, with Dan Rather, prior to the practice, had flown to Portland and anchored the CBS Evening News from the ice rink where Tanya Harding was practicing. Mm. Now, let's do a little reality check on that. (laughs) Uh, Gee whiz. And on the day of the practice, Scott, Tracy, and I were sitting in our little cubicle at Northern Lights Hall in Hamar. We were about 30 miles south of Lillehammer. And in the arena, there are 400 journalists, media, written written guys, uh, writers, who were given access. We were the only radio television outlet that had access to the, to the arena. Uh, these 400 were over interviewing Nancy's uh, uh, coach, two coaches, Evie and Mary Scottfold. And I looked around the ring, Scott and I did, and we counted six CBS correspondents and respected news team. Mm. Susan Spencer, Martha Teichner, Bill Geist, uh, Mark Phillips, John Blackstone. Uh, one more I'm getting, I'm forgetting. And right below us, uh, Connie Chung, uh, getting ready to co-anchor the evening news. And Scott looked at me and he said, someone has really lost perspective. Mm. Because some, some, some of these kids have lived, lived all their life in hopes of pursuing a medal at the Olympics. And it's just last in this, it's, it's forgotten in this cartoon show. So, and to add the drama sprite from Dnepropetrovsk, Ukraine, hmm. Oksana Bayul uh, sneaked in and threw in an extra triple jump at the end and beat Nancy Kerrigan by one-tenth of one point. It's extraordinary. I'll not, for those of us old enough to remember it, you never forget it. Greeny and the great Vern Lundquist. One more for you because we're going to run out of time, and there's no way I could not ask you about my favorite sport, and that is the Masters for so many years. And we heard the legendary calls there. We heard in your life, have you ever seen anything like that when Tiger had that ball that sat on the lip at 16 and finally fell in? And we heard, yes, sir. When Jack Nicholas rolls in that putt on his way to winning the Masters in 86, how, how would you describe what the Masters means to people who love it and what it has meant to you in your career? Well, I've been so blessed. I, I went for the first time in 1983, uh, with the exception of two years, 97 and 98, 
I took a hiatus and went to went to Turner Broadcasting. We had lost the NFL, so I was absent for those two years. But otherwise, I'm coming up in August, in April on my thirty sixth. Uh, I, I I get asked all which is the two which is of the two is your favorite, and I I I always defer, and I think it's age specific to Jack. Uh, I mean, he is six months older than I am, and I hope he stays that way for another 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we've talked about that moment. Uh, uh, I know Tiger much less uh, intimately than I do Jack. Uh, but Tiger and I have mentioned it. Uh, I'm not an autograph collector. I bet you aren't either. But I do have signed autographs uh, from both of those uh, guys at that moment. I'm very proud to have him. And uh, my nephews will inherit those. Nancy and I don't have kids when the time comes. But uh, if you've got two minutes, I'll try. Yeah. The tiger thing. Mike, I think I've told you this before. I'm not sure. Uh, how we covered that was, was the, the result of a courageous decision by our technical director, a guy named Norm Patterson. Now, the way it works in the front of a television production truck Producer to the left, director in the center, TD to the right. At Augusta, there are 54 monitors in front of them. Uh, Steve Milton, the, the director, calls the shots. Uh, he directs, take camera six. Okay, ready six, take camera six. And Norm Patterson punches a button. In this case, Bob Wishney was next to me in the tower. And it was take camera 10. That's Bob Wishney. Okay, Take 10, and he had Tiger with the chip shot all the way down. And when it started to, to roll to a stop, Steve Milton said, ready six. And six was over here. It was a flanker camera who had a, a head-to-shoulder shots of Tiger for the reaction. And he said, ready six. And as the ball stopped, Steve said, take six. And Norm Patterson intuitively did not take six. He stayed with 10, so we all got to draw, see the ball drop. Had, and that's a fireable offense to ignore the direct command mm. of a television director. But he took it upon himself, and obviously uh, it worked out miraculously for all of you at home and all of us who were there. Otherwise, we never would have seen that ball go in the hole. How long did it sit on that lip, Vern? 1.8 seconds. 1.8 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so, <laughs> An advertising age estimated that the accrued value of that exposure to Nike was $19 million. <laughs> Pretty good rate if you can get it. And, and growing. <laughs> <laughs> Vern, I can't tell you, again, the entire all of these stories in greater length are on my podcast, which is available anywhere that you get your podcast. It's, it's called I'm Interested, and we did a lengthy interview, and I'm so thrilled to kick off this week with you. The very best of your family, and I do hope we can do this again soon. Thank you so much, Vern. Thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure. The best, just the best. Vern Lundquist, the legendary voice, and I didn't even get a chance to ask him here. Again, on the... He's a difficult one because there were so many stories. He broadcast the kick six. So the Auburn, Alabama, when the kid catches the field goal that it comes up short and he runs all the way back for the touch, he did that game. And I didn't even get a chance to ask him about that. But from the kick six to Tanya and Nancy to the Duke-Kentucky game 
to the entire Cowboys of the 70s, America's team, through all the rest of it and more, the Masters, uh, just a legendary voice. And I am, I am endlessly grateful to him for taking that time today. Greeny, the podcast. The moments and the voices behind them. Pass is intercepted in the goal line by Malcolm Butler. This is Legendary Voices Week with Greeny. What a pleasure it is. I don't even need to tell you the name behind all those legendary calls. I'm Greeny live from above the Heineken River Deck at Pier 17. The play-by-play courtesies in there include NBC Sports and, of course, the man behind the mic for all of them. As we continue Legendary Voices Week is the legendary Al Michaels. Good morning, Al Michaels. Mike, how are you? You know, been around a long time, so... uh... I feel like Zelig sometimes, uh, winding up in all these incredible places and having these fantastic finishes, and uh, hopefully there'll be a few more. Well, absolutely, you know, and and that's one of the things that I so enjoy about this week. I had Vern Lundquist on yesterday, and we'll do more as the week goes on. And just to get the perspective of people like you who have been there for everything. When I talked to Vern yesterday, he did everything from Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan to he did, you know, the Duke-Kentucky game, to all this different stuff. And you have done, obviously, all this NFL. You're going to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, oh, by the way, you once said, do you believe in miracles? So you've had quite the career. But now I'm going to put you to the test. Here we go. Hembo gave us a trivia question. You have called, Al Michaels, 10 Super Bowls. There's only one person who did more Super Bowls play-by-play than you did. Do you know who that is? Absolutely. The great Pat Summerall. That is correct. He's correct. He got it right. Hembo, <laughs> he put you to the shame. P- Pat Sumrall, 11. Al Michaels, 10. Dick Enberg, 8. Kurt Gowdy, 7. All right, well done. That's a good start. Al, let's, before we start reminiscing, let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. The, the NFL offseason has been unlike anything we've ever seen in this sport, something much more akin to what we're accustomed to in basketball, where players decide, I want to go from here to somewhere else, and they kind of force their way out, and quarterbacks are... Like, like a game of musical chairs. As you sit and watch all this go by, what thoughts are going through your mind? Yeah, it's a different uh, time. Mike, there's no question about that. Uh, the the players are far more uh, vocal, shall we put it that way. Um, it, it's a curious thing to watch, too. And it's fun for the fans. Because, you know, it's the offseason. You don't have any games for six more months. So the offseason has become almost as exciting as the season itself mm. to find out what's going on. And especially the, the trades that have been made, I mean, already with the Wentz going to Indianapolis, with Stafford going to Los Angeles, with Goff going the other way, with Watson saying he wants that, with Wilson saying who knows what at this particular point. <laughs> so it, it's kind of fun to just sit back and, and watch. And this is truly a, a quarterback carousel. you got J.J. Watt, of course, who uh, worked his way out of Houston and winds up in Arizona, it's fun. You know, it's fun for the fans too. It's it's great for the fans, and uh, they can hope that a certain guy winds up with with their team in the off season. 
But uh, as I say, the offseason, I mean, this is like, you know, in baseball, the hot stove league is, is pretty good. But in football, it's like the offseason is better, is, is, is as good or is it as interesting as the season itself. I agree. So they've even stolen the hot stove now from all of the other sports. And right. that brings me to this question, because you recall, as I do, Al, when pro football surpassed baseball as this country's most popular sport. It's been something like 40 years now that that happened. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, why did it happen? And why has, at a time when everything else struggles to find its place and its foothold in entertainment and everything else in our culture, why has football been able to remain the extraordinary entity that it is? You know, Mike, I think there are a number of reasons, but in my mind, the primary reason is the way the game is televised. Mm -hmm. the, the, The game looks so good. I mean, you think of the four sports, baseball, there are 10 times as many baseball games as football games. So each football game has far more importance. It's only once a week. I say once a week. I mean, your team plays, you know, normally one time per week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, it's, I mean, it's just a spectacle on TV. And I think about, you know, the great television directors. And believe me, I work with one of the, the best of all time, maybe the best in my mind, Drew Esikoff. And I've worked with a lot of them. And, you know, there are a lot of great guys out there who do this. Uh, they could put they could put Spielberg to shame, and I'm, I'm you know half kidding about that. But Spielberg's got fifteen or twenty takes to make a movie look fantastic or a scene. The live television directors have one take. Then you add in the technology, um, the cameras above the of the playing field, uh, the the cameras in pylons, uh, just the HD TV coming in twenty years ago. It's, it's, it's a spectacle. You talk to people and they say, you know, they just love to watch the game. And I think the other thing too, Mike, is that in baseball, it truly is more of a regional sport. There's no America's team in baseball. You can say the Yankees or the Red Sox, whatever, but, but it's not like football where there are a ton of people all over the country who love the Green Bay Packers, who love the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, of course, uh, the Cowboys called themselves America's team. Not, Sure, that's exactly right uh, right now, but there are people who either love them or hate them but want to watch them. So I think in that regard, it's been television. It's been the fact that there are only 16 regular season games versus 162. I think that has a lot to do with it. But, I mean, the game, I mean, I was talking uh, with a couple of people last night. You take the four sports. I love hockey. I love it. But I love it in the arena. I like, I like to watch it. You, the geometry of the game, just the, the feel, the sounds. Television's done a much better job of covering hockey than they did years ago. Basketball and baseball are kind of in the middle. Football is spectacular. You have, you know, as Jimmy Johnson once put it, we were talking about, you know, football on TV, and he said uh, on television a four-yard gain can look like Armageddon. <laughs> if, you're sta- if you're sitting in the stands – you know, on, uh, on the five-yard line of the upper deck, a four-yard gain is a four-yard gain. Mm. Uh, I, I credit a lot of it to uh, 
to the way the games have been televised through the years. I think it's a really good point. And by the way, the Gallup poll says 1972 was the year that pro football became America's most popular sport, and it has remained that way ever since. And, and, and to make this point, the last time I had you on, and I had Chris on fairly recently as well, how many years in a row is it now that, that Sunday Night Football is the number one show in America? It, I mean, it's some ridiculous number of years in a row that it's the number one show on television every single year. And that's a testament to how good a job you guys do and to the popularity of the sport. Okay, so let's get to business well, it's, here. It's, yeah. been, it's been 10 years. But, 10 you know, years. Just a, a little side note to that. So yeah, I live in Los Angeles on yeah. the west side. And of course, you know, I, I, before the pandemic, we, you know, we eat out almost every night. And once in a while, I would run into Norman Lear, the mm-hmm. great, the iconic, the amazing Norman Lear, who was honored at the Golden Globes the other night. He's 98 years old and still sharp as a tack. And one night I actually walked in. I don't know him that well, but I knew him from, you know, seeing him at the restaurant once in a while. And I said, we just passed you. And he looked at me. I said, well, you know, all in the family was number one, like six years in a row. And we'd gone to seven. So now, now, now we're in 10. It's the only thing I have on Norman Lear. Okay. Well, that might not be the only thing, but it is uh, the most interesting <laughs> thing. The great Al Michaels is with me. All right, let's do some of the reminiscing that we promised we would do here. And I want to go through as many of the sports as we can, but we'll start with football. When someone asks you, what is the most memorable football game you ever called? What do you tell them as the answer? I go back to the Super Bowl in Tampa after the 08 season, Arizona against Pittsburgh. And the reason is, number one, what is Arizona doing there? I mean, this was a team that was beating something like 50-7 to late in the season in New England. They somehow get in to the playoffs they wind up, you know, winning a wild card game over Atlanta. They go to Carolina, beat them, come back home as the four seed against the six seed Philadelphia, beat them. So, what are the Arizona Cardinals doing in the Super Bowl to begin with? Kurt Warner's the quarterback. They've got the great Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, Ken Wisenhunt is is the coach. But that game was so good. That game had two unbelievably iconic plays. I mean, to me, I can make a case for James Harrison intercepting a pass at the goal line at the end of the first half and running 100 yards through, you know, seemingly the whole state of Arizona. Larry Fitzgerald's <laughs> going down the sidelines. He's running into his own guys. He can't get to him. The clock is running out. This is the difference between a 10-point lead for Pittsburgh or Arizona having the lead at the half. And he is able to get to the goal line and get in there as the clock goes to 0-0-0. So if he doesn't get in, they can't even kick a field goal. That was an amazing run. I mean, that was just a breathtaking play. And then, of course, that game ends after Larry Fitzgerald gives Arizona the lead with a couple of minutes to go, with Roethlisberger leading Pittsburgh down the field, uh, converting third down after third down. And then as his fourth option, winding up hitting Santonio Holmes, who somehow makes that catch, stays, keeps both feet in uh, for the touchdown. I mean, to me, that game was as good as it got. Uh, It was phenomenal from start to finish. And the kicker, Mike, is that I didn't know it at the time, but that would be the last game that John Madden would broadcast. Mm. So John and I were finishing our seventh year together, uh, four at ABC and three at NBC. And then John in April said, I'm retiring. I've had enough. It's time. And, boy, that was some way to go out. That would be my my, my favorite football game. The great Al Michaels is with me. You know, Madden is someone I grew up in the 70s, and those Raider teams were so legendary. I always had a sort of a – I was always fascinated by and liked John Madden. And and then he went on TV and obviously was unbelievably good. But what's fascinating about him now is that every kid knows him. 
He's, his, his name is now more associated with a video game. I mean, those kids are all playing Madden. My son is playing Madden hours a day, literally every single day, and that's what the game is called. How aware is he of that? Like, I've never had the chance to interview him. Like, I, I'm, he's a Hall of Fame coach, and he is maybe the greatest uh, an analyst that ever lived in any sport, and yet he is now known as a video game. He's very aware of it, and he's very you know proud of it, and mm-hmm. very happy that it has transpired that way, and it's brought more people uh, into the game of football and, and enjoying the game of football. But you know, I, I've said this before, Mike. I think he is as important a figure as anybody in the history of the National Football League. Why? As a coach, tremendous record, good enough in a ten-year career uh, to to get into the Hall of Fame. He creates the the greatest video game. I don't know if it's the best selling of all time. It was at one particular point, but everybody knows what the Madden game is. And as a broadcaster, he was fantastic. Won a lot of Emmys, but created sort of a new template. He he created a, a template that that was different than anybody had ever accomplished in that position. The analyst position was pretty much cut and dried, and we'll give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that but not much more than the, the, the X's and O's and the nuts and bolts. And John, of course, with the sound effects and the doinks and the booms and all of the rest and the scribbling and the telestrator and the Gatorade showers, you know, uh, being uh, analyzed uh, to the nth degree, he did it differently. So to me, John Madden could have been in the Hall of Fame in any of three categories, coaching, broadcasting or creating a video game. So I say uh, that he is one of the most important figures and maybe the most important in the history of football for that reason. It's, it's impossible to argue. I think that's exactly right. And I grew up loving him and, and, and to some degree kind of miss him to this day. All right, on to the next issue here with Al Michaels. I can't imagine there is a day in your life that goes by that someone doesn't ask you if you believe in miracles. So what, what as, as someone asks you for your recollection of that time, of, of that time in Lake Placid, not just that moment itself, but just that time, what, what, is your, what, what is it that you think of when you think back to that time? I think of where the, the world was at that point, where America was at that point. And I think uh, you know, people who remember it or who have watched the movie Miracle uh, understand that it just wasn't a very good time in this country. The prime rate, believe it or not, was 20%. Nobody could get a loan. There were gas lines. Uh, the, our hostages had been taken in Iran. We couldn't get them out. The Soviets had threatened to invade Afghanistan, uh, and then we threatened to not go to their Olympics, which we followed through on. They paid us back in 1984 in Los Angeles. It just it just was a, a bad time, a really bad time. And I think of, you know, you have a whole bunch of college kids who somehow are able to manifest uh, uh, six months of training under the great Herb Brooks and pull off an incredible upset, a stunning upset in a sports sense. And my, my words, do you believe in miracles, came mainly from the game itself. And I, I understood the outside forces that surrounded this, Mike. But you look at that game. The U.S. was outshot 39-16. to 16. The U.S. trailed one nothing, 2-1, and 3-2. How many times in the history of hockey on any level has a team overcome three deficits, been outshot two and a half to one, and won the game, and do it in the Olympics in, in your home country? And then to go two days later and be trailing two to one at the end of the second period and winding up winning the game, there are so many, so many things to think about in regard to that game. And I don't want to name drop 
But I'm out here. We have a house in uh, in Palm Desert, and so does uh, Kurt Russell, who played Herb Brooks. Mm-hmm. We had dinner with him last night, and he's you know he his partner has been Goldie Hawn for years and years. And again, this is not a name drop, but it just happens to be of of the moment right now. And we are we we spent 15, 20 minutes last night talking about you know the movie Miracle, and he played Herb Brooks, and he did such a fantastic job. But just I mean the excitement that you feel just in talking about it. This is 41 years later. And people say to me, you know, what's number one in your career? And I go, are you kidding? What's number one? This is one through ten. So that, that's fascinating to me. So if someone said what is – because I think most people will associate you so much with the NFL now. And, again, this is 40-whatever it is now, 41 years ago that this happened. But right. th- th- it remains your fondest memory, your most important memory of your, of your extraordinary career in broadcasting remains the Miracle on Ice? Not even close, Mike. Mm, mm. How could it? How could this be top? Yeah. I mean, you you go there. It, it's it's what else lives, all of these years. As I say, you know, my favorite football game was Arizona against Pittsburgh after the OA season. But almost nobody, you know, brings that up. A couple of people from time to time will talk about that game, but that's not out there like on an everyday basis. But the hockey thing is. There's no question. And even if, you know, look, a ton of people, most of the people in this country weren't even born at that time. But I get such a kick out of like a father or a grandfather and a son or a grandson. They come up, they start to talk about the game. And you can tell that the kid has been told the story. He understands. And the movie, the movie was really important, even though obviously it takes some literary license. But I think people understood the essence of what took place because of the movie Miracle, which came out in 2004. So you saw what it was. You, you had a pretty good understanding of, of what this meant. And, you know, what other event could you possibly do? And I remember, Mike, one of the great lines ever was Ed Swift, the writer uh, from Sports Illustrated, wrote the end-of-the-year piece. And, and that team, of course, they were the sportsman of the year for Sports Illustrated in 1980. And he said, it made you want to hug your television set. Mm. And you just wanted to wrap your arms around those guys after what they had done. So, look, I've done so many wonderful Super Bowls and the World Series and NBA Finals and Hagler Hearns, which we talked about that on your show one time, and Mm -hmm. you had Al Bernstein on following me. All these things are great, but that thing can't be touched. Listen, I I could do this forever. I'm going to run out of time here. I I don't even get the opportunity to ask what it's like to have Goldie Hawn, to have dinner with Goldie Hawn at this point, which I can tell you in all honesty was my biggest crush growing up in the 70s. Private Benjamin and foul play and all of that. And so it it, it kills me that I can't ask you about this, Al. (laughs) Well, we had, no, again, we we had a, a great time last night. And I was trying to convince them after 35 years of living together and never being married, to tie the knot. It's time. <laughs> we, we, we were uproarious about okay. that. Fair enough. Uh, listen, Al Michaels, I, the, when we decided we wanted to do this week and hear from some legendary voices, there's no way to do it without you. You're always so generous with your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. The best to your family, to your golf game, and I hope that we will uh, cross paths again soon. Thanks, Al. Thank you, Greeny. Keep it going, man. All right. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Greeny, the podcast. The moments and the voices behind them. Look out! Do you believe it? It's gone! In right field, Tarasco going back to the track, to the wall. And what happens here? He contends that a fan reaches up and touches it. But Richie Garcia says no. It's a home run. A pop in the shadow left. The New York Yankees 
most successful franchise of the century. Open. Chicago with the lead. This is Legendary Voices Week with Greeny. On ESPN Radio, all those calls courtesy of NBC, the voice is unmistakable. We are live, as always, from above the Heineken River Deck at Pier 17. And Legendary Voices Week continues with the one, the only, Bob Costas. Good morning, Bob Costas. Hello, Greeny. How are you? Well, I'm well. And I'm going to begin this story. I'm going to begin this conversation with a story you will find amusing. So here's, here's what happens. So Hembo, my researcher, has been with me for 10 years now. And he just today told me something that I had never known before. And that is that the first time he heard me describe you as my idol, I've said many times, you've heard me say many times that you were my professional idol growing up in this business, that the first time when he was working on Mike and Mike that he heard me say that, he found it peculiar because it was his perception, just looking at the two of us, that you were younger than I am. He thought I am old. He thought, how can that be? Greeny is older than Bob Costas. And I said, I think that Bob will find that story amusing, and so I will open the conversation with that. I am somewhat amused and also somewhat befuddled <laughs> because you're not just slightly younger than me. You're considerably <laughs> younger than me. So I don't know where to go with this uh, except, um, you know, facials, loofah baths, whatever it is you need to do, Greeny, to kind of keep up. Well, he, he, he then went into a wait, lengthy did I description. Just I, oh, wait a minute. Did I just suggest yeah. inadvertently that I'm taking loofah baths or never <laughs> I'd like to withdraw that. You, you, what you sort of path have you led me down here? <laughs> We're for a minute in, and I already wish I hadn't done it. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't suggest it. You sort of confirmed it. And, 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 yeah, it, well, okay. <laughs> it is the more direct way. But no, so Hambo is so young that he has just been seeing both of us on TV basically his whole life. And, and then he yeah. went into a whole description about how spry he finds you to be. He finds you very youthful looking and very, I believe, what was the word you used? Was it spry? It was spry. I think it was spry. spry. And I said, I think Bob will like that. Am I doing calisthenics on the set? (laughs) Very boyish. Very boyish. That was the other word. Boyish. Okay. Yeah, Let, yeah, yeah. Let's get to business. So, so Bob, here's the first thing I want to wait, ask you. Wait a minute. What, do, you want, do you want me to give you another story related to that? Of and course. Then we'll let it go? Please. Okay. Uh, you wouldn't think something funny would come out of this circumstance, but it did. Muhammad Ali's memorial service, summer of 2016. Uh, it's such an occasion that they have to hold it in the arena where Louisville plays their basketball games. And there's quite a cross-section of people there. And it takes a while before the service begins. So for about an hour or so, people are just kind of gathered and they're talking in small clusters. And four or five of us are having such a conversation when in walks Don King in a full Don King getup. So just picture Don King and he's got the American flag jacket and he's waving a miniature American flag. He's got that big beaming smile and he greets each person with a short biographical sketch. So he says, Mike Tyson, once the most feared man in the ring. <laughs> Coach Pat Riley, straight off the pages of GQ. Sugar Ray Leonard, not a mark on him, still as beautiful as a child. Katie Couric, America's sweetheart. And he turns to me and he says, Michael J. Fox. Let's <laughs> 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 talk about boyish, right? <laughs> and, so, and Katie... Katie goes very gently, uh, Don, Don, it's Bob Costas. And King is so shameless, without missing a beat, he says, Bob Costas, greatest commentator in the world. 
<laughs> oh, my God. I've never heard that before. That is phenomenal. Greeny and Bob yeah. Costas with you. Legendary Voices Week, the legendary voice, which is unmistakable. Okay, phenomenal story. Let, let's, now let's get down to business. So we okay. do this thing called a green list on the show every day where I pick my top five, this, that, or the other. And today, because yesterday we made a big deal about the anniversary of the game in which Will Chamberlain scored 100 points, we, mm-hmm. I named my five events that I would most like to have attended in sports history. And we let the callers do the same. And I thought, here's an interesting question for Bob. You've broadcast and been in attendance for so many huge events mm-hmm. in sports history. What is the number one event in sports history, whatever it might be, that you were not present for, that you would most you would give anything to have had the chance to broadcast? You know, one thought that comes to mind is Jackie Robinson's first game mm-hmm. at Ebbets Field for the Dodgers, April 15th, 1947. But what happened in the game itself was not that eventful. What Jackie did in the game was not that eventful. It was his mere presence. There's so many to choose from. Uh, but I guess what pops into my head, just to be able to verify it, if you could go back in time and know what you were looking for, have the advantage of knowing something about it instead of just watching it unfold in real time, I think I'd like to be at Wrigley Field in 1932 to judge for myself whether Babe Ruth really called his shot or whether he was just motioning derisively out at Charlie Ruth, the pitcher, or toward the Cubs' dugout where they were heckling him uh, mercilessly. That's a great one. And, of course, that game wasn't televised, or we would know it, and all the rest of that. Yeah, it's, it wasn't televised. Exact, exactly right. Yes, a, and they didn't have cell phones either. <laughs> no one tweeted anything about it right after it happened, Bob, which right, today right. means it didn't actually happen. Um, it's, okay, the great Bob Costas is with me. Now, now let's get down to some business here. I wanted to ask you some stuff about baseball. We haven't done a lot of baseball since I moved times here, and there's no one better to do it mm-hmm. with than you. And, and so much of the conversation when last we saw baseball, meaning the end of last year, at the end of the World Series was about analytics and the way that is driving decisions in the sport mm-hmm. right now. There have been more strikeouts than hits in each of the last three seasons that had never previously happened the previous 140 whatever it is years before. So how do you feel analytics are impacting the game right now, its watchability and the enjoyment fans have of it? And what, if anything, do you think can or should be done about that? Yeah, I'm not late arriving to this one, Greeny. Mm-hmm. I've been saying for years that what may be good and clearly is good in some sense for gaining a competitive edge is terrible for baseball as an entertainment product. And now the ironic proof of that is that Theo Epstein is now working in the commissioner's office in effect like Dr. Frankenstein Hmm. trying to advise them as to how they can get the monster back into the castle and stop rampaging across the countryside. Yeah, I'm one of the key guys who helped create this with analytics, says Epstein, and to great effect. But I recognize that it isn't good for business. It isn't good for baseball as an entertainment product. Now, there are several things that can be done. I can't take credit for all these ideas. Uh, In one case, if we get to it, it's Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, uh, who I first heard it from. And others, Tom Verducci, uh, has suggested them. In Tom's case, what he suggested, he's not the only one. I've thought of this as well for a long time. You've got to outlaw shifts. Now, I know baseball, and I've always said this, baseball is different from other sports. You can't always uh, use an analogy and compare baseball to other sports. But in this case, I think it's relevant to say, look, uh, you can't be in the lane for three seconds. They either allow a zone defense or didn't for a while in the NBA. You move the three-point line, 
in or back. There are all kinds of formations that are not permitted in the NFL. Uh, the blue line's there for a reason in the NHL. So you could say, look, you've got to have two defenders on either side of second base. Now, if that means that the left foot of the shortstop is touching the base on the shortstop side and the second baseman's right foot is touching it on the second base side, that's okay. But you've got to have two defenders on either side of second base. Now, in the ninth inning or extra innings with the game on the line, if some creative manager wants to bring an outfielder in and stack the infield, as has happened occasionally, that's different, and you can go ahead and do that. Another thing that would help, more so than limiting relief pitchers to facing three hitters, limit the number of pitchers on a pitching staff. Hmm. It used to be generally nine or ten, around ten, let's say. Now you have some games you have 14 pitchers, 15 pitchers. You're going to use them. This will change strategy, and it's something that, that makes sense. And I also favor a 20-second or whatever number they want to put it at, a 20-second pitch clock with nobody on base. With a runner on base, that's different. But uh, a pitch clock with nobody on base, let's get things moving. You take a look at a game, not from the distant past, even from one generation ago. If you count the first delivery, if the clock starts on the first delivery, you might get three pitches, as long as it's not a foul ball. You might get three pitches thrown in the space of 20 seconds or so. But now the average time, and again, this is a Verducci stat. He's great at this. The average time between pitches in a big league game is 23 seconds. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing leisurely pace. It's not supposed to have a lethargic pace. And what you get out of all this is fewer balls in play. Baseball has a great crop of young shortstops, more than any time in recent memory. Let them do shortstop things. Let them do Ozzie Smith things with only two defenders on either side and the shortstop and closer to to his traditional position. You're going to see more highlight reel type plays. And if there's the possibility of hitting the ball through the infield, which has been taken away largely now by shifts, it will diminish. It won't change it completely, but it will diminish this obsession with lifting the ball and hitting it over the shift and therefore attempting to hit it out of the park. It'll just change the approach to some extent, change the approach of hitters, all of which will be better for baseball as an entertainment product. Greeny and the great Bob Costas is with me. And as you're talking, the aforementioned Hembo is typing stats in feverishly. There were 22,000 576 shifts in baseball last season. That's one in every three at-bats. And and I'm so happy to hear you saying all this, Bob, because whenever I suggest anything, I'm accused of hating the sport. People, because I have hosted shows for years that have focused primarily on football, and I I love baseball. I grew up going to Yankee Stadium with my parents. I love baseball. And whenever I suggest... The people who are forecasting doom for the sport are dead wrong. The people who think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it are dead wrong. The truth, as is the case in most things, is somewhere in the middle. And anytime I suggest any sort of significant change like this, people will accuse me of hating the sport. Well, no one can accuse you of hating the sport. No one more famously loves it than you. So I'm delighted to Mm -hmm. hear you say this. Yeah, back in the day uh, when I think I was among the first to sound the alarm about what steroids were doing to baseball, Did I do that because I disliked baseball? No, I did it because I was concerned about the state of baseball for a variety 
of reasons, and you want to see the game thrive. That's the reason to make these observations. Absolutely. All right, Greeny and Bob Costas. Next question. Hembo put a good one up here for me here that I, I hadn't thought of asking you, but we talked the other day about if you were starting a basketball team with any one player, who would it be? And, and you can argue for Luka Doncic or whoever it might be. How about baseball? If you were starting, if, if I gave you a team, congratulations, Bob, you now own a baseball team, wow. and we're doing a draft of every, literally every human being currently walking the face of planet Earth, and you have the first pick. Who is it? Well... Are we looking at 10 years, at five years, at this year? What are we looking at? You can answer it however you choose. You're on the team. So I I would think you would be concerned with more than just one year, and that that was part of the discussion that we had in basketball. We were considering younger players. Well, Mike Trout is 29, will be 30 this season, so Mm -hmm. we should have many good seasons ahead of him. You know, it's an ongoing discussion in Mm -hmm. baseball. The nature of the game um, in basketball and in football, the premier players in football at least, if you're talking about the premier player being a quarterback, uh, they're involved in almost every play in some sense. The camera is on them uh, in football half the time. And in basketball, you know that Michael Jordan was going to touch the ball almost every time down the floor. LeBron is going to touch the ball almost every time down the floor. The problem is in baseball, no matter how great the player, currently or ever in the history of the game, he gets four or five turns at bat. Whether it's Willie Mays, Ken Griffey Jr., or Mike Trout, there might only be a couple of balls hit to him in the course of an entire game, and those might be routine chances. So that's the nature of the game, and it's also the nature of baseball and its playoff structure and whatnot and its long season that the guy who is, by overwhelming consensus, the best player in the game, has played in three playoff games, three in his whole career. He's been in the majors for a decade the Angels have played in three playoff games in that period of time. They haven't won a single one of them. He's never gotten onto the big stage of the World Series or anywhere close to it. Uh, it's not his fault. So I guess if I was starting a team at this point, at least for a few years down the road, I'd take Mike Trout and try and build around him. I think that's that, that would be the right pick. We were talking about this in the context of Fernando Tatis Jr., the young kid who signed a 14-year yeah. you know, contract and all the rest of that and looks like he's going to be special. One more thing. All right, Greeny. That, the, that was the yeah. other one that came to mind. Yeah. That was my second choice. Yeah. He's that kind of good and that kind of young, and you know, he's now worth $340 yeah. million. Dollars, so <laughs> life is pretty good, all right. things considered. One more quickly. I've got three minutes left. Uh, I think the last time we talked was right at the time that people were watching The, uh, the Last Dance. And I recall that time so vividly and people have become, I think, so obsessed with it. And you were such a huge part of that. In my recollection of it as a young reporter, you guys, you and Ahmad and Marv and and everybody at NBC at that time were, were like larger than life to me. When you look back on that now. When people, when people, young people ask you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just watching all these movies. What was it like being around Michael Jordan when he was the best? What is the answer to that question for you? Well, it was a period of time that will never be duplicated. Now, remember, it was preceded by the Bird Magic Johnson era, which mm-hmm. wasn't too shabby, uh, and overlapped Dr. J and many other great ones. But in the 90s, you had a perfect confluence of circumstances. Sports marketing came together, the dream team in Barcelona in 92, the game is becoming global. All the big games, this is no disrespect toward what cable TV does now. TNT's coverage of the NBA is magnificent. You know, Ernie and the guys uh, in the studio show, probably the best studio show in the history of sports television. But all those games were on NBC. 
many of them in prime time on weeknights. Michael Jordan and the Bulls were more a part of the cultural conversation than LeBron has ever been. It's no disrespect toward LeBron. You could make a case that LeBron and Michael are equally excellent, but LeBron is not as great as Michael Jordan was. Jordan's impact was greater, and he had more signature moments, beginning with North Carolina and the NCAA tournament winning shot, counting through the Dream Team, MVP in six NBA finals, six for six in those finals, too many great moments to recount all of them here. And this is a difference. It's not LeBron's fault, just like what we talked about before, is it Mike Trout's fault. Your little blue-haired Aunt Matilda, if you have one in <laughs> Omaha, wanted to watch Michael Jordan. She didn't have to know the difference between a three-pointer and a pick-and-roll. She wanted to watch Michael Jordan. That was the impact he had. And we were lucky enough to be the primary ones documenting that on NBC. And I think that as I look back on it uh, and some of the old games that they showed when there were no other basketball games to show from that 98 season, I think that we dramatized it, captured the theater, and documented the stories about as well as any network could uh, when we covered the Bulls of the 90s. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Again, I was just a kid reporter covering the Bulls at that time, watching and idolizing you to my point, which is I know Hembo finds curious because he thinks I'm older than you are, so how it, how it was that you were sitting there and I was sitting where I was is complicated, but that, that's the right <laughs> way to put it. It is a time that will never be duplicated for more reasons than we could get into. I am out of time. Bob, you know how much I always appreciate this. Thank you. The very best to you in everything, and I hope I'll see you soon. Thanks, Greeny. Take care. You too. That's the great Bob Costas. Greeny, the podcast. The moments and the voices behind them. This is Legendary Voices Week with Greeny. Coming to you live from the Heineken River Deck at Pier 17, and there we go. That is the appropriate introduction for one of the most legendary announcers in the history of any sport, and certainly for multiple generations, the voice of his, the legendary NHL announcer, Doc Emmerich, is with me here on ESPN Radio. What a pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you so much for taking some time for me. It's great to talk to you and go cats. Go, go cats. Absolutely. And every, yeah, cons- I, I wanted to go to Northwestern, okay. uh, but I did not. Uh, I went other places, uh, a number of schools. If I sang all my school songs, we'd be past the half hour. Uh, but you only had one to sing and it was a very proud one indeed. And, uh, growing up in Indiana, I heard the, all about the bears and they didn't go back far enough because, uh, uh, the Bears played at Wrigley Field when I was growing up. I was a Bears fan. Our coach was George Hallis, and our announcer was Red Grange. Mm, my goodness. What, what, what Long a Long time ago. Let's start there then, Doc. That wasn't where I planned to start, but let's do it. Take, take me to uh, your, your voice is so incredibly familiar to everyone, and your sensibility, I think, is so, um, it's so approachable. It's, uh, tell me how it started. How, how did your love for sports, your love for the National Hockey League in particular, how did it begin? Where did it all start for you? Well, in, in a rural town in Indiana of 600, we were very much like uh, the era of the movie Hoosiers. 
It was the same size town. There were 13 celebrities in town, the 12 varsity members of the team and the coach. Mm. Uh, unlike Normandale, our coach did get fired in the middle of the year. There was a student walkout in the high school, and the coach was rehired a few hmm. days later. It was that sort of bombastic sort of small town that revolved around basketball, and you couldn't help but be a sports fan surrounded by that. We were near Chicago, as you could probably appreciate having gone to Northwestern. And so uh, our teams, we were 130 miles from Chicago, but our teams were largely Chicago-based at that time. And um, television was just in its infancy. And so even though the pictures were snowy, my brother and I watched everything that moved when it came to sports. And uh, I wanted to be a baseball announcer until I saw hockey for the first time. I was 14. It was a minor league team in Fort Wayne, Indiana that I'm uh, still a fan of to this day. And that's partly the orange jersey that you see peeking out of the corner there, the Fort Wayne Comets. And it was at that point that I saw my first game of hockey that I wanted to be a hockey announcer. You can imagine the high school guidance counselor in rural Indiana hearing uh, that a student wanted to grow up to be a professional hockey announcer. It mm. didn't really compute too much greening. But at what point did you realize you would do it? I, I've told this story many times when I was young uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm younger than you are, of course. But, but when I was young, uh, the idea of doing what I do for a living now seemed so far fetched that when I told my grandmother this is what I wanted to do, she said, and I quote, why can't you do something good? When I said I wanted to be a sports announcer. So t take me back to that. At what point did you realize not only was this something you could dream of doing, but that you actually could and would do? Well, I, I wound up uh, going to Fort Wayne and sitting in an empty section and doing games to myself. Mm -hmm. And um, a guy named Bob Chase, who broadcast the Fort Wayne games, would uh, confer with me every once in a while over these tapes. And, and I got the idea that maybe I could do it. It was just a matter of getting a chance. And after about 10 years, I finally got my first chance in a town called Port Huron, Michigan. But my parents were both teachers. And shortly after my wife and I, 42 years, got married, uh, one summer, my dad got my wife aside and asked whether she thought I would ever get a real job. <laughs> so it was similar to what your grandmother asked you. <laughs> I, I think to uh, people that have steady jobs, this translates as something that's sort of uncertain and risky, but it's fun. You get in free, you get a good seat for the game, and you get to work with exciting people. And you also, uh, I found later on in life, you get something in the mail every uh, couple of weeks. It's great. <laughs> but just getting paid for something doesn't necessarily make it a job. So I would ask you that question. What was the answer as you look back on your life? Did you ever get a real job or has this all been something other than what one might describe as a job? Yeah, this was not a job. It was it was fun to go to work every day. And it sounds Pollyanna. Sure, there are times that the travel would wear you down. And the thing that excited me in 1980 when I got into the NHL after seven years in the minors was not riding buses anymore. It was riding on airplanes. Mm. And after a while, that got to be difficult. There was one time when I was 65, which was some time ago, Greeny, mm. uh, that I did eight games in 10 days in eight different cities. And to do it right, you had to be at the morning practices at 1030. So that meant going through the metal detector early in the morning. And this was after 9-11. And so it was much more difficult to go through security and be there in the morning. 
but I'm not wanting anybody to feel sorry for him. It was just the challenge of, of doing that and travel became harder. And so it wore on you a little more as you got a little bit older. And I used to, when I was in my 30s, hear people in their 60s talk like that. And I just sort of smirked and hmm. walked away. And when I was in my 60s, I didn't smirk at it anymore. <laughs> hmm. But the, the job was so much fun that I never really felt like I was tired. It was it. It's hard to describe, but occasionally, like you, I'm sure, I get a chance to go and either virtually now or in the old days uh, a year ago, go on campuses and speak to journalism classes. And sometimes I'll ask them, if the class is small enough, to stand up and talk about the very first event of any size that they got to attend when they were kids and maybe who took them to the game? What do they remember about walking into that first stadium or first arena the first time? And it's amazing the detail that they'll recall the first time they go to an event. Who played? Do you remember any of the players? Do you remember who won? And the detail they'll remember and invariably they will recall the whole story with a smile on their face. And then I'll say to them, multiply that times 40 years hmm. and you've got me <laughs> and aspire to do this and don't give up because it's really, really worth it. It's great. It's a beautiful story. Doc Emmerich is with us on the Goodyear Hotline. Goodyear celebrating March deal days with month-long service and savings. Visit GoodyearAutoService.com for offers. So I, I want to go through some of the, of the legendary moments. When, when someone today, when one of those students says, what is the one moment from your career, the one game or event that you broadcast that stands out more than any other? What's the answer to that? Well, I'm a hockey guy, and probably the proudest I was ever to be around the sport. Uh, I'm not, I don't evaluate what I do, but I was, the proudest I ever was, was on the day of the gold medal game in 2010, mm. when the two powers of North America, Canada and the United States, met in Vancouver. And the reason for that was uh, NBC recorded 27 million people watching. And part of the reason for that was it was the day of the closing ceremony in Vancouver. It was not halfway around the world. So the time zone made it convenient for so many people to watch. And it was the hockey game that was going to be played before the closing ceremony. And so you had these best professionals from Canada and the best professionals from the United States and the greatest elements of hockey in that it was the last minute of the game. It was a one-goal game, and Canada was ahead. The goalie was pulled, and out of a net mouse scramble, Zach Parisi scored for the United States to force overtime. Now there's an intermission, and the Zamboni's going back and forth. And anyone that hasn't been watching is probably being texted by somebody else saying, have you seen this game? I mean, it's going <laughs> to overtime for the gold medal. And it goes into a few minutes of overtime. Sidney Crosby scores. Canada wins. And there's a time factor before the medals are handed out. And uh, Pierre Maguire, who was working for the Canadian Network that day, but had worked for us during the whole time, uh, did some interviews, and we carried a couple of those. And one of them was with Crosby, and one of them was with Brian Miller, the U.S. goalie who was brilliant through the whole tournament. And they just spoke so wonderfully about the sport, about the competition in the Olympics, and about the game and everything else. And I thought to myself, for someone who has not followed the sport that much, they get a chance to see the best parts of a game of hockey, the uncertainty of it all, and the fact that 
these guys are playing for the gold medal and they get two of the best statesmen that we could have for the sport speaking about it after the game is over. And so that was one of the proudest times that I think I was ever around hockey. I remember it well. And it was a time where more people to my, in the circle in which I travel, were talking about the sport and talking about that game and that day than at any, practically any other time I can remember. Greeny and the great Doc Emmerich, who's with us here on Legendary Voices Week. Four years later, you were on the call for the TJ Oshie shootout game. And that's another one that I was asking people when I was asking people, which are the moments that from, from Doc Emmerich's career, do you remember the most vividly? That is another one that people always remember. What, what will you always remember about that game? Well, TJ was rushed from the celebration after onto numerous interview shows that were taking place over in Sochi. And the time difference was nine hours. And, so time passes, and he's, he's interviewed, and, and he kept saying, you guys are making too much of this. Well, he was told, had this been a game in outside the preliminary round, uh, you would probably be as big as Mike Arruzzioni was in 1980 in Lake Placid. Mm-hmm. But anyway, time passes, and we all come back to the States, and TJ is with the Blues in Chicago. And so uh, we're doing that game on NBC. And at the morning practice, um, I got him aside and I said, so I noticed before one of the shots that you were taking of the six that you took in the shootout that you had a big smile on your face. And he said, well, it was getting kind of funny, wasn't it? And I thought, no, it wouldn't seem like it was getting funny to me. It was a lot of pressure, but he thought it was funny. And I said, was this the best thing that ever happened to you in your life? And he said, shortly after I returned, I saw the birth of my first child. That was the biggest thing. That was awesome. Hmm. And I thought, was nothing like putting everything in perspective, is there? Greeny and the great Doc Emmerich, who is with me here, you know, and as I listen to you talk, and it's interesting, I had not known that your parents were, <clears throat> pardon me, were both teachers, but you are known to use literally hundreds of verbs to describe the action as you are calling all of these games. Is that where, how did that begin? Is it, did that come from your parents or either of them, for example, an English teacher um, and, and, and your mastery of the language, where did that begin and how did you decide you were going to use that to describe this game? Oh, I don't know. It's not conspiratorial at all. I I did. I never went into the booth with a list of words. Um, a couple of things. I had a fifth grade teacher named Una McClurg in that little town who said any word you use five times becomes yours for life. I remembered that. And when I was at Miami University, one of the many school songs that I won't sing today, <laughs> uh, I was traveling back and forth to Dayton. I got a pass to see the Dayton Gems in the IHL. And I would talk to anybody in the press box and their announcer, Lyle Steig, who later went on to do a year of the Washington Capitals, uh, said, if you can come up with different ways to say the same thing, because when we broadcast hockey, there are so many repetitive actions that if you say dumped in from center ice, every time it's dumped in from center ice, you'll drive people nuts. So I took that to heart and I never wrote anything out, but just the raw number of doing 3,700 games, uh, you're going to find different ways to say things, and then they become yours for life. 
And so just as I got older and did more games, uh, my vocabulary varied. It's just the way that I talk. Uh, I tried not to use any words longer than marmalade because one of my producers, John Shannon, once told me, don't use words that are bigger than three syllables. But uh, I tried not to do that. Sometimes I failed. But uh, so that was the reason that there were so many varied ones by the time that I got gray haired and lost what hair I had. <laughs> Doc Emmerich is with us here. My, my favorite tradition, well, my two favorite traditions in the National Hockey League. The first is the handshake line at the end of a playoff series. Um, I remember covering one years and years ago. The, the Blackhawks, when I was covering sports in Chicago, lost a heartbreaking series to the Detroit Red Wings. It, it was five games, but but every game it felt like went to overtime and double overtime. And I remember Ed Belfour couldn't even be in it. Those Those traditions are so wonderful. But then, of course, the other is that when a team wins the Stanley Cup, every player gets one day to celebrate with the Cup, and those stories are frequently legendary. Of those, what is your favorite? What is your personal favorite story of a Stanley Cup celebration? Um, the Devils were the first ones to make sure that every player mm. and every staff member got to use the, got their day with the Cup, and that was in 1995. Um, one of my favorite stories is before that time, when um, some of the players got the cup and some didn't. But in uh, 1991, Paul Martha, who was a longtime Pittsburgh Steeler, but was also in the hierarchy of the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, was not going to get the cup. He's, he had a, some reason that he couldn't take it for a couple of days. And so Phil Bork, who was a player for the Pittsburgh Penguins, had it for an extra day. <laughs> uh, Phil had a garage. <laughs> He also had tools in his garage <laughs> and he got curious. And so he uh, he turned the cup upside down and he realized that there were screws underneath there that matched some of the tools that he had. And so he uh, he took the cup apart from the underside and he learned a lot about the history of the people who had actually worked on the cup before because they had engraved their names on the underside of the bowl. Mm. And since he had joined them in 1991, he added his name to the underside and then put the cup back together and all was well. He still does not know to this day whether anyone has discovered the fact that his name is on the underside of the cup as well as etched conventionally on the outside. But that's one of my favorite stories. And that occurred before everybody got their day with it. So Phil Bork is still a broadcaster. He works with Mike Lang, the legend uh, on radio in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Doc, I, I could do this <laughs> literally. I, I wish I had four hours. It is such an honor to have you. I can't tell you how excited people were when I told them that you were going to be here. The, the degree of reverence, respect, and, 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 and just good feelings that people have for you. I, I hope that that resonates for you. I hope you're aware of it. It's, it's a oh. pleasure to chat with you, and I hope we can do it again. Thank you so much. And, uh, and, and pass along to your cohorts to never forget George Hallis. <laughs> you better believe it. A he, Papa he intimidated Bear. officials and he gave his players only one ticket. That's what I'm, I, I understand. You got one ticket for the game. You didn't get enough for family. You got one. That was good for. And, he, and so they had to pair up. Um, but they made money for a reason. George was watching carefully. Mm. <laughs> Mike Ditka used to say he would toss around nickels like they were manhole covers. And that was that was <laughs> the famous quote. That's it. 
it. Thank you so Greeny, much. Greeny, it's wonderful to talk to you. Well, the, the honor is mine. Thank you for taking this time. I hope we'll do it again. Thank you. Greeny, the podcast. The moments and the voices behind them. To the end zone, and it's intercepted at the three-yard line. Gilmore jumps up and grabs it. Going to the court with Archie Diakono. Three seconds at midcourt. Jenkins gives it to Jenkins for the championship. Incredible performance. Shock and awe in college basketball. UMBC makes history in Charlotte. There it is. A win for the ages. This is Legendary Voices Week with Greeny. The unmistakable voice, of course, of Jim Nance, the courtesy is all CBS because he has been the face and the voice of CBS Sports for two generations now. He is, as I think I once said to him, he is the standard that all of us try as hard as we can to emulate and to chase. The one and only Jim Nance is with us on ESPN Radio. Thank you for doing this, and good morning, Jim Nance. Uh, good morning, Greeny. What an honor to be with you, and stop with all these crazy accolades. It doesn't make any sense to me, but hey, listen, I'm, I'm glad we have a chance to chat a little bit. I'm a great admirer of yours, and uh, thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure, and and obviously people associate you so strongly with three different events, and we will do our best to get all three in the time that we have. The NFL, the road to the Final Four, and then I'll save my favorite for last, which is the Masters, But and, and, and all of the, the golf on CBS. But I did want to start with this. We, we came across this sort of honestly this week when we were talking about Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game, and I found myself wondering what one sporting event that I never got the chance to attend or see. If I could have picked one in history, what would it be? And so I've been asking all of the legendary voices this week, if there's one event in sports history that you would have given anything to have been behind the mic for, what would it have been? What would you like to have called that you didn't get the chance to do? I have one from each of my three primary sports, okay? For for the mm-hmm. NFL, I would have loved to have been there January 15th, 1967 for Super Bowl One. If nothing more, forget the fact it was Green Bay and Kansas City, and Hank Stram would later be my teammate in the booth for a number of years. But really, the idea that I would have been able to have um, a chance to work alongside Ray Scott, Frank Gifford, Pat Summerall, and Jack Whitaker. Those four men called the game for CBS. Now, NBC had its own feed that day. It was broadcast on two networks, but... That would have been the thrill for me in the NFL to have been a, just have been a part of of that group of four. Uh, in college basketball, I would have liked to have done the game of the century between UCLA and my alma mater, Houston, in the Houston Astrodome. But you know, Dick Enberg did that game, and he did it like everything else. He did it exceptionally well. Uh, that was the game that really brought a dome atmosphere to college basketball, and it was the first really big national exposure one against two Houston actually beat UCLA in that game before UCLA beat him at the final four later that season and lastly in golf that's a tough one it's a tough one to say because there's a there are a bunch of masters I would have liked to have said I was a, a part of but maybe the 75 Nicholas battle against Miller and Weiskopf it was great drama I've looked back at that show many times it would have been a thrill to be a part of that one 
spectacular choices all. Obviously, there are so many moments in the Masters and its history that obviously go back to a time before anything was even on television. The great Jim Nance is with me here. One more thing before we start getting into the actual sports themselves. For those who've not seen it, one of my the most amused I think I've been in a very long time, this is several years ago now, was when you were telling the story, I think I read it in Golf Digest, when you were telling the story of how when you go into a coffee shop or a diner to order your breakfast, how specific you are about the toast and how difficult it is to get the toast exactly the way you want it. For those who have not heard that story, I would love you to tell that. Well, unfortunately, that was one of my occasions where uh, I was prone to embellishment. Uh, I'm not a big carb guy anyway, so the number of times I'm going to try to debunk this story a little bit because I, okay. I probably have toast maybe once a year. <laughs> uh, but on that occasion that I do, Greeny, I like the toast to be burnt. I don't like it coming out where you can barely tell if it's been in the toaster or not. So there was a time where this became, <clears throat> I wouldn't say an issue, but my my wife and Melissa, my longtime um, you know, running mate, office manager, uh, they, they laminated a, a card that showed a toaster with two steaming pieces of, of toast, <laughs> uh, smoldering actually, coming out of the toaster and said, you ought to carry this with you <clears throat> on those rare times that you order toast. So I happened to actually whip out that card <clears throat> one time in my life, and it was in the presence of a writer from Golf Digest. And he thought this was the wackiest, craziest, most bizarre thing he had ever seen in his life. And I was doing it basically to get a reaction out of him. I went to a place where I <clears throat> I had breakfast all the time out here in California, Pebble Beach. And he said, what's that all about? <clears throat> and now that I've kind of got him hooked, I embellished it by saying, I took this to a whole new level. You know, when the, when the eggs come out and the toast is not the way I like it, now i got to send the toast back. And by the time it comes back the way I like it, my eggs are cold, so the whole thing's off kilter. So, like, by submitting this this card uh, with the laminated toaster, uh, it saves me 10 minutes a day. He says, really? Now, I've got them really on the line now. And I said, well, if I have toast six days a week, uh, that's 60 minutes. That's an hour, you know, times 52 weeks. I've got 52 hours in my year back that I didn't have before. That's over two days. I've got two extra days I don't even know what to do with now, thanks to this laminated card. The whole thing was a ruse. I don't, I don't, I, I truly, I haven't had toast in probably six months. But I did it that one time, and, of course, uh, Guy Yoakum, who's a wonderful friend, he ran with it and thought it was the coolest, craziest, wackiest thing he ever heard. And uh, the thing's taken on a life on its own. I will tell you, Deadspin picked up the story and thought I was completely insane. If it was true, I would get it. But the fact that I did it one time and and uh, I got a good laugh out of it, it's been kind of worth it to me. But, you know, i got to tell you, Greeny, I check into hotels yeah. And like the, you know, sometimes there's an amenity waiting for you when you check in. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of these hotel managers when, when they're, you know, when they want to do something nice like that. I'm never asking for it. They'll say, "Hey, we're going to bring an amenity up to your room." And sure enough, ten minutes after you've walked into your room for the first time, um, somebody from room service brings up with with the silver tray and the <laughs> lid over it and the big reveal, and there it is, burnt toast. Like I'm going to actually <laughs> eat it. Um, but yeah, I've had some good laughs with it. That's for sure.
It is a story that has taken on a life of its own, and I'll be honest with you, I believed it. So I'm glad we're able to debunk this here. This is the kind of hard-hitting journalism, Jim, that I pride myself on doing on this radio show. Okay, the great Jim Nance is with me from CBS, of course. Let's go through the sports here. Let's start with the NFL. So someday, when your great-grandchildren ask you, what was it like to cover Tom Brady, what will you tell them? I would, you're going to have to talk about how he defied all odds from the get-go, how uh, he became an overachiever because no one respected him in the draft and all of that. He had this chip slash boulder on his shoulder uh, throughout his career. But I think in the end, you always will attach Tom to what he did in New England and uh, and all those years that Belichick and Brady uh, dominated uh, and, and created a dynasty up in Foxborough. And then, of course, the postscript is, and maybe we haven't written the final postscript on this thing, um, the, the, the prologue is to go down to Tampa and win the Super Bowl. You know, we're a month away from that now, having called that game. And I still, I've talked to Tom a couple of times since, I still can't get my mind around the fact that the Bucks were the Super Bowl champs and he pulled this off. I mean, this absolutely defies all logic. I had the regular season matchup between Tampa Bay and Kansas City. Kansas City won on Thanksgiving Sunday. They dropped the Bucks to 7-5 and five at that time. I thought we might not ever see them again. They may not make the playoffs. They would never lose again. And, I mean, it's just a testament to one man willing this to be and getting his teammates to believe in him. You know, anybody that achieves greatness, whether it's you're a, a, a quarterback or you're a broadcaster, or you're a filmmaker, part of the magic is getting everyone around you to see your vision. Do people see where we want this to go? Do they know what we want this show to look like? Do we know what everyone knows, what we want this team to be in the end? What is this film going to be? What is everybody's role? How do we get everybody locked into the same vision? Well, Tom has done that better than any athlete I've ever been around in my 30-plus years. I agree. And, and I think that to, for all of the attention and all of the accolades that he received, I still, to some degree, believe it has been underplayed just the ridiculous nature of what he accomplished here. It's unlike anything I've ever seen in sports. One more thing I wanted to ask you, and it, it's, it's tangentially connected to Brady, and that is you broadcast the game with Tony Romo, the AFC Championship, a couple of years ago when he beats Mahomes in the, uh, in, in the overtime. And that was the game where I think Tony Romo's legend was made. And I, I recall oh, yeah. watching that game, and I, my nephew and my son are watching with me, and it was such an incredibly dramatic fourth quarter that they're both sort of shouting and yelling in between plays. And I found myself telling them, guys, be quiet a minute. Listen to Tony Romo. He's literally calling every single play before it happens. And I've never had the chance to ask you, what was it like when he was sitting there calling and, in fact, diagramming all of these plays before it happened? It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, and it feels like this legend that he now has developed. That, it feels to me, is like where it really began. If you go back and look at it, Greeny, what you saw was every play that New England ran, Tony foreshadowed it. And that's because he understood, like Brady does with all these years of experience, they both have all of the film room time and dedication, all the years of experience to step to the line of scrimmage and immediately identify where the weak spot is in the defense. 
Every time we have a Tom Brady game in the four years that I've worked with Tony, Tony is able to see what Tom sees. When you get younger quarterbacks, it's not the same thing because those quarterbacks just haven't had the tonnage of time breaking down film. So they are on the same wavelength. I mean, these, he was channeling what Tom was seeing and doing, and it was pure genius. It was an absolutely awesome performance. I don't know how he didn't win an Emmy Award for that, but it was about halfway through that um, on, a, on, on a long pass down the sideline to Gronkowski, which, of course, he called in advance, mm-hmm. that I dubbed him Romo Stradamos for the first <laughs> time. It was just mind-blowing what he did that day. But, you know, this is Tony. I mean, he just has this knack. He's the great chess player that can go around Central Park and play 30 different games at one time. I just got to see the board. Okay, over here we move this one. Go to the next board. We move here. Instantly, instantly, his mind sees the wrinkle in the defense. And that's part, two that speaks to, to Tom Brady's success this year and his longevity because these guys for whatever all those years have added up and that day i mean it was one of the great broadcast performances i've ever seen or heard i agree i i I didn't know that he didn't win an emmy and and frankly i can't imagine how he couldn't have won an emmy It, it was it was i think the most amazing thing i've ever seen anyone do in that role and i've been watching the sport for almost 50 years. All right, quickly to the final four, because your favorite sport and my favorite sport is golf, and I want to make sure we save time for that. But here we are getting ready to get on the road to the final four, and obviously this will be a year unlike any other for all of the, the reasons of the pandemic. But, but when someone asks you, what was your most memorable final four, the most memorable game you called there, what do you usually tell them? Well, that's a good one. I, you know, I had a lot of fun in being able to call Chris Jenkins' shot at the buzzer to give Villanova the championship in 2016 over North Carolina. I loved it because working with Raft and Grant Hill as uh, Ryan Archie Diacono was coming up with the ball, uh, Grant inserted, watch out for Jenkins. Jenkins was trailing on the play. Mm-hmm. And it just, there was no one stepping on one another. It was like the perfect assist. And I spoke to Grant on that call. They get it to Jenkins for the championship. And of course, nothing but net to win it at the wire and there was the cutaway by our great director Bob Fishman of Roley Massimino in awe and disbelief that Villanova had won another national championship. I savored that moment for a multitude of reasons, but primarily because I love the orchestration of the teamwork there that I felt with Raft and Grant and with Mark Wolf and Bob Fishman, our guys in the truck. But you know the one that always stands out to me was mm. in Indianapolis, where I'm headed this week for the Big Ten for selection weekend and I'll be there for the whole month for the NCAA tournament. And that's the great city to be able to take on this challenge of a one-city NCAA tournament. But 2010, and Gordon Hayward took the shot from the right side on the midcourt stripe. It was directly in front of us. I was calling the game with Clark Kellogg. We had the perfect sight line, uh, Greeny. When it left his hand, I knew that it was definitely not going to be off right or left. It was definitely on track. And... Um, if you recall, it, it, it hit off the window in the, in the glass, hit the front of the rim, and it looked like teetering for a moment. It could have easily just come back and dropped instead of rolling off the front of the rim. If you added it up 47 feet from midcourt, a little bit longer from the right side of midcourt, let's call it 50 feet, he launched the shot. He probably 
was up by one inch if you mm. did the math on it. Had that been just one inch lower off the glass, that is not only the greatest shot to close out an NCAA tournament. I think it would have been the greatest shot to win a championship maybe in any sport, to win a, a championship on a right. mid-court shot, to have Butler at that time would have beaten Duke. Uh, it it would have been epic. And that's the one that comes back to mind to me the most often because I saw it so clearly, and I can still see it leaving his hand. Uh, and it was just a fraction away from, from being the dream finish. That was an unbelievable moment. I remember it so well. The great Jim Nance is with me here from CBS. I've saved my favorite for last, and that, of course, is your long-standing relationship with golf. I, I saw you once describe it as you love golf the way you love oxygen, and I feel very much the same way. So, so let's talk about Tiger Woods briefly here, and we all hope that we have not seen the last of him. We, we, we have no way of knowing at this point how he will recover. We will just wish him the best and hope that we someday do see him again. But as one whose, whose tenure there at CBS has basically run the entire length of his time um, as the superstar that he is, how would you describe what he has meant in, in the big picture, to the game of golf over the last 25 years? It's hard to quantify that, Greeny. And I don't, again, we don't know if the final chapter as a competitor has been written. I'm just glad he's alive, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. As you know, I had that interview with him 36 hours before the crash. Uh, he joined us at the Genesis Invitational. It was on for about 10 minutes. And I know that tape's been scrutinized and looked at over and over again. I, I, I can't speak to it. I thought he was uh, terrific on there with with us. And uh, I, I was actually on a family vacation in Mexico, and um, I started to you know hear my phone was was the texts were coming in, and it was it was horrifying. I ran in, saw the aerial footage first with the car upside down, and I thought, oh my gosh, what, do we have another Kobe Bryant type uh, tragedy on our hands? So uh, I'm still at this point it's too fresh for me to think too much about his future as a player. I'm just glad he's alive and his kids have a, a father to, you know, to, to, to see their lives be raised by, by their dad. Um, what, what's his impact? I mean, it's just, uh, he's popularized the sport. You know, there've been others before him, Arnold Palmer did, Jack Nicholas did. Um, but, but this, this, this was like a whole new level. I mean, how Tiger took, took the game and, and, and brought so many people to the sport got young people hooked on the game. Um, his, his career has really transcended golf in a lot of ways. And I've been just very fortunate that because, again, CBS has the most golf events and we have uh, two of the four majors through the years that most of his wins, I believe were you know, 57 maybe of his 82 wins, somewhere in that neighborhood, and nine of his 15 majors uh, have been in front of us which has left me with the responsibility of walking him up the 18th as a winner on many, many occasions. And I go from the 97 win for the ages, uh, as I called it on the spot, uh, watching him shatter every Augusta record, youngest, largest margin of victory, uh, the 72-hole scoring record at the time, uh, to his win in 2019. How did that make sense? I mean, it was like a Brady-type achievement, what he did coming up on two years ago. I called it the return to glory. It wasn't a big exclamation. It was more of like a, a soulful uh, observation about a man whose life had gone through a lot. 
physically, with injuries, personally. We know all those stories and how he had triumphed over that, how he had his family back united as one. And it was a beautiful story. Again, it was bigger than the game. Um, and I'm just very fortunate that as someone that's asked to document these moments in sports, that I've just, out of dumb luck, I've been in a position to be able to call these careers of Tigers and, and Tom Brady's. Uh, that was my 100th Brady game, by the way, in the Super Bowl. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the likes of Mike Krzyzewski, all five of his championships. I've, I've, uh, I, I've been there to call those games. So um, you're as good as the story that's been put in front of you. You know that. We're in the storytelling business. And um, I'm just really grateful, feel very blessed that I've had a chance to tell some really great stories. Give it my best anyway. Well, no, no one tells them better than you. And I, I could do this for 10 hours, but I'm out of time. Jim, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this to do a, a legendary Voices Week. It would not have felt right to do it without yours. Thank you so much. We'll be watching the road to the final four. And then you know how much I'm looking forward to seeing what follows at Augusta. So we'll be watching along the way. Thank you for taking this time. The best to you. And I hope we'll see each other soon. Greeny, thank you. This this starts March Madness for me. It's a wonderful stretch. This is kind of the official launch here being on with you. And thank you for truly bringing so much joy to my life. You really do. And I know there are millions of people who can say that. But being in the business and having you on uh, in part of my life, you know, five days a week, it's a big thing. And I'm grateful. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Greeny, the podcast.